0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Patrick Othoma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. We've had a few ups and downs these last few months. We went back to live in-person events for September, October, November. But then, thanks to Omicron, we went back on to Zoom where we'll be staying at least for a little while. But hey, we'll be fine. We have three stories on this podcast for you, and first up is a first-timer who came to the Black Box in November when the theme was full. Here's McCall Gilfillan.
1: As a teenager, I spent part of every summer sailing in the San Juan Islands in the Pacific Northwest on a 47-foot ocean-going sailing yacht. Now this sounds idyllic, and with the benefit of a lot of hindsight, I see that it was. But to this day, when viewing pictures of sailing, I feel a combination of awe at the beauty and a slight raising of my heart rate and a minor stress response. The difficulty for me in enjoying sailing wasn't the seasickness. It wasn't the lack of water, the severe physical work, the limitations on toilet paper. The difficulty was the captain. You see, my father had a dream, and when his company moved our family to Seattle, it was finally within his grasp. He, his dream was of sailing with his family by his side. He could picture it all, the frothing waves, the sleek lines of a sailing yacht, the fresh wind, sun on his face, family crewing the vessel together like a smooth machine as we cut through the sea, with porpoise swimming alongside. There was just one problem. My father, for all his enthusiasm, was not a very good sailor. He understood the mechanics of the sails, the wind, the roles of the crew. The part he really didn't respect was the charts and the tides. This minor detail combined with a strong daredevil streak led to a variety of misadventures that firmly fit the formula attributed to Mark Twain. Comedy equals tragedy plus time. When Dad set foot on the dock, he was no longer my father. He instantly became the captain, and the rest of the family became his crew. My mother, the first mate, was the brains of the operation, overseeing all the nitty-gritty of feeding and packing for a family to live at sea for up to three weeks at a time, as well as handling the tide charts and maps, which she faithfully plotted out for the captain and which he often completely ignored. As the oldest, you might think I was the second mate, but this is firmly not the case. My next younger brother was the true sailor. He is mechanical of mind and as much of a daredevil as my father, so he took the role of captain's right hand on deck from the age of nine. My youngest brother and I were just grunts along for the ride, and then there was the final crew member, a golden cocker spaniel, who wore her matching life jacket with pride and trotted happily up and down the decks. Yes, she did occasionally fall overboard, but her life jacket had a handle on the back, like a suitcase, and we could scoop her up again with a hook at the end of a long pole. (laughs) One particular trip sticks firmly in my mind. It was the summer I was 16. I had just gotten my driver's license. I had a boyfriend and a summer job, so I lobbied hard to stay at home, but I was firmly told I was coming. When packing for weeks at sea, my first concern was reading material, so I always had about a dozen books with me to allow a mental escape from the madness about to ensue. Even when you were off-duty, sometimes the bell would ring, an honest-to-goodness brass bell, which meant all hands on deck. Everyone would have to scramble because the captain had managed to get us into some awkward situation or another. A frequent cause for the ringing of the bell was that the captain had again ignored the first mate with her carefully worked out charts for the narrow inlets around some island or another and had gotten the keel stuck on a sandbar by sailing too close to shore. This happened so often that we as a crew knew exactly what to do. We would, together, drop and bundle the mainsail. Then, in order according to weight, we would all, apart from the captain, have to scramble out onto the boom. A boom is the horizontal support for the sail that connects in a right angle to the mast. Once the whole family was clinging to the boom like monkeys on a tree limb, the captain would release the line, holding it along the center of the deck so it swung out over the ocean at a right angle. The four of us, on the end, hanging over the water was enough weight to tip the whole sailboat just a little, allowing the keel to release from the sandbar and we would move forward again. I would like to take just a moment to mention that I have a teenage son and he's at the age where he thinks that I am embarrassing. He does not like to be seen with me in public. And if I'm performing as his personal chauffeur, he asks me to drop him off 100 meters before the destination, lest people think he did anything but spawn into this world like a video game character. (laughs) Although I try to respect his delicate sensibilities, in my head I often think, child, you have no idea what it means to feel like a fool because of the presence of a parent. My only consolation as a teen, when clinging like a monkey to a boom hanging over the ocean, was that the chances of being observed by my peers were relatively slim. However, there is one shining example of the captain's dubious sailing skills that was observed by not just another passing vessel or two, but by an entire seaside community. We had dropped anchor in a bay with a sandy beach somewhere in the San Juans with the plan of going to shore in the rowboat to do laundry and get provisions. The first mate advised the captain of the tide chart and that we should drop anchor well out considering how long it would take to accomplish these tasks. The captain ignored her and dropped anchor closer to shore. We all, including the dog, rowed to the beach where we left the rowboat for the morning to do the necessaries. When we returned around lunchtime, lo and behold, There was our sailboat, lying not slightly, but completely on its side on the beach like a whale, the waterline having receded well out into the bay. A crowd had gathered. Locals were discussing the situation. Had the vessel been abandoned? Was it shipwrecked and therefore legal salvage? As we crept amongst the crowd, the most often expressed opinion was that the owner must have done this on purpose to examine some problem with the propeller or remove built up barnacles from the keel. I remember hearing someone say, it has to be on purpose. No one would be so stupid as to beach a yacht of that size accidentally. We quietly removed ourselves some distance away and looked to the captain. The captain looked to the first mate. The first mate consulted the tide chart and informed the captain it would be another seven hours or so before the water would again be high enough to sail away. We went back to town, we ate lunch and dandered about while the captain ruminated on the situation. He decided to embrace the opportunity to not wait the full seven hours until the boat was again floating, but rather go back sooner and actually check the propeller and remove any particles that might've been built up on the keel. My teenage heart sank lower than I thought possible. At this stage, my most fervent prayer had been, please let us get back. the boat without being seen and slip away under the cover of darkness it was not to be back we went through the crowd of very interested locals me with a hoodie pulled all the way over my head we retrieved the rowboat and rowed back to the now slightly floating yacht i was trying to have an out-of-body experience the second mate was tossed up on board A rope platter was dropped over the side. Feats of gymnastics were performed in order to get the first mate, me, the fourth mate, and the dog onto the steeply tilted deck along with clean laundry and groceries. Ropes were involved. The second mate was forced to row the captain around the bottom of the partially beached yacht, inspecting the propeller and knocking off barnacles. This went on for hours. I refused to show my face above deck. The first mate put away groceries in the galley cabinets, but only on the lee side of the boat, leaning steeply down towards the sand, as opening the opposite side ones would have resulted in food raining down on her head. The fourth mate comforted the dog, both of them lying on the wall behind one of the side berths. No one could use the toilet, because you would be in a gravity-defying pose that would not result in bodily waste staying in the bowl. Finally, we were once again fully floating. We raised the anchor and then the sails and sailed off into the dusk. I know all teenagers say their parents make fools of them. I maintain I have a much stronger claim to that feeling than most.
0: Thanks so much, McCall. Parents are the worst. If you have a story for 10x9 or you want to know more about us and why wouldn't you check out our website 10x9.com there's plenty of info there including all our 2022 dates and a few other surprises okay let's go to zoom and it was june last year and we had teamed up with the belfast photo festival for one picture one story and paul baughan told us this story from his
2: home in Monan. we first went out on a date when we were 16 and apart from the odd interruption joining the priesthood, moving away to London, dating other people, moving to Galway, we were together pretty much consistently and got engaged when we were 24. And then we took a very relaxed approach to actually getting married, finally getting around to it when we were 30. When I told a work colleague that we were getting married, he said, congratulations, I didn't know Eileen was pregnant when she do. She's not pregnant. Really, he replied, how posh. We were living in Kildare, but we wanted to get married at home in County Monaghan, the true centre of the universe. So we did. Traditionally, the couple gets married in the bride's home parish, which would have been Monaghan Town itself, the actual centre of the true centre of the universe. But for reasons I can't quite recall, we decided to get married in Tidavnet, my parish. We booked our wedding reception in Cabra Castle in King's Court, The manager there asked how many people we were inviting. Ours was a small wedding by Monaghan standards, an intimate gathering of 196 people. The manager reassured us that generally 25% declined the invitation due to clashing holidays, commitments or acts of God. We were relaxed either way, which was just as well as we actually had 198 people show up. Eileen organised her dress, the flowers, the ceremony, the band, the menu, the hotel reservations for guests, the honeymoon, the invitations and the cake. All I had to organise were my own shoes. This was no problem as I worked in the shoe trade. I was the Irish agent for Skechers at the time and dealt on a daily basis with the best shoe shops in the country. Any one of whom would have been only too delighted to send me any shoes I desired from any brand you can imagine. So I was very relaxed about getting them, so relaxed in fact that I forgot, and ended up buying anything I could find in my size the day before. a trivial detail. A few days before the wedding, we left our house in Kildare and went home. Eileen spending the next few days in her family home, me and mine. Visitors called with well wishes. On the night before our wedding, all of our friends gathered in the squealing pig, and we thought it would be an awful shame that we missed out on the crack, so we joined them. Many people commented on the fact that we shouldn't be meeting the night before our wedding, but we were very relaxed about all of that. I think Eileen left the bar at midnight-ish. I went home with my brothers at 2 a.m. The wedding wasn't until 1 p.m., so naturally we stayed up and played pool and drank whiskey till 4 a.m. The next morning I was rudely awoken at 11.30 and then had breakfast in bed and a bath. I got dressed leisurely and headed over to the church for 1 p.m., we were to be married by two priests father joe from my parish whose church we were getting married in he was the co-celebrant and father larry who was the parish priest from town eileen's parish father larry is now the bishop of clover and yes before you ask it was as a direct result of marrying us i imagine my brothers john and stephen were best man and groomsmen And we entered the empty church and proceeded to the altar where we ran through again, where each of us was to stand at various points. My brothers were more nervous than I was. Father Larry came out and told us a few jokes to put the boys at ease. And we were all relaxed and having a good time when it happened. I looked around and saw a church full of people smiling up at me. Oh, sweet divine Jesus, this is all real. This is all happening now. I felt myself wobble. I needed to sit down. I took my place in the front row, John and Stephen sitting either side of me, telling me I was going to be fine. My head was resting on the handrail. I was concentrating on breathing. Mam and Dad were sitting behind us, getting concerned. They passed forward a packet of throaties. I ate five immediately. I looked around to say thanks to Dad and he immediately said to John and Stephen, get him outside now before he faints. I'd only ever fainted twice before, as a child, and oddly both times at Mass, once in this very church. I'd always joked that it was a low boredom threshold. Maybe God was punishing me now for those jibes. She can be funny like that. I was helped outside by Dad, John and Stephen. I sat on a small wall beside the side door, my head between my knees, breathing heavily. Stephen went to the front corner of the church so that he could keep an eye out for Eileen's car arriving. John and Dad kept saying soothing words, I imagine. I just kept hearing a rumbling noise in my ears, which changed slightly in pitch as I breathed. She's here! Get back in! Stephen shouted as he ran back towards us. I snapped to attention and regretted it immediately. Everything was brighter, pleasantly so for a second, then blindingly so, and then... And then somehow I'm standing at the front of the church facing fathers Joe and Larry, holding on to the handrail in front so tightly that my knuckles are white. Nearly there, my brother John whispers. Don't faint, don't faint, don't faint. I mutter under my breath as I step out into the aisle. Don't faint, don't faint, don't faint, I continue. Eileen kisses her dad on the cheek and then turns to me. Jesus, she whispers. She holds my hand. Don't faint, don't faint. She squeezes my hand as we sit down don't faint, don't faint. Wait, I'm smiling. I'm okay. I gradually calm down. We make it through the readings, Father Larry's homily, charming and about us. This guy will go far, I think. And we're standing to make our vows. Father Larry is holding the microphone to his mouth. You, Paul, take Eileen to be your lawfully wedded wife. As I lean forward to the microphone to answer, he tilts it towards me and I do booms out around the church. There's no doubting that answer, Larry quips, and there is much laughter. He's a bishop now, you know. Eileen says she does too. We kiss. Larry says, ahem, <coughs> loudly, and we stop kissing. As we sit down, everyone can hear my sigh of relief. We hold hands. I relax. Communion signing the register. Applause. Photos, photos, photos. We're in an old car, a vintage car, no less, on our way to Cabra Castle. Very, Very slowly. This delightful old car will not cross 30 miles per hour. We don't care. We are married. We have the world's tiniest bottle of champagne. We relax. The Car starts to make loud disconcerting noises. Our chauffeur curses loudly. Our guests start to overtake us. It starts to rain. The single tiny windscreen wiper makes it halfway across the windscreen and then stops. Our cursing chauffeur pulls over and gets out with sheets of newspaper and mops the screen. He gets back in. We drive another mile and he pulls in again to clear the screen. I am no longer relaxed. Eileen squeezes my hand. Relax. Everyone's having a drink at the hotel. As long as we're there by six and they get fed, they'll all be fine. We're not in any rush. And we weren't, which was just as well as it took us another hour to get the 10 miles to the hotel. We got there eventually. Everyone had just assumed that we were getting photographs taken somewhere and hadn't missed us at all. My brother John was actually hoping that we'd changed our minds and gone straight to the airport so we wouldn't have to make his speech. He looked even worse than I had in the church. I gave him the last of the throaties and told him all will be well. The photograph shows how well his speech went. He relaxed, we relaxed, everyone relaxed. We went to bed at 5am and we were the first ones to leave the bar. It was a grand, relaxing day. Thanks so much,
0: Paul, and thanks for giving us the title of this week's podcast. I'll put the photo of the wedding party on our social media channels and that story is also on our YouTube channel where most of our Zoom evenings now live, all in bite-sized chunks. As you know, 10 9 is always free and always will be, but you can help us out via Patreon or PayPal. Our overheads are low, but just now our income is lower. There are links at the website 10 9com but of course... The greatest support is just knowing you're listening. Thank you. Okay, on to our third story, and it's back to November and the Black Box. Here's Lorna Don.
3: Hesitantly, I push open the huge iron gates which stand guard against the public. The gothic grandeur of the immense, imposing building before me is overwhelming. Keeping watch, a majestic stone stag tosses its antlers haughtily at the Edinburgh skyline. It's 1993, I'm 24, and I'm nearing the completion of teacher training in Edinburgh. All my life I've moved around from town to town. Now I need a job. I love Edinburgh and I'm desperate to stay. Only one post for an English teacher has been advertised in the city. It's at Fetty's College, the most expensive boarding school in Scotland. Tentatively, I enter the holy ground. Astonishingly, I've been offered an interview for that one precious post. This is not familiar territory. My high schools were a Glasgow Comprehensive and a Dorset State Grammar. And I feel like an imposter. As I watch the boys saunter across the lawn in their outrageous pink and toffee striped blazers and cricket caps, I'm led up a stone staircase and past the framed paintings of ex headmasters. One seems to look down on me disapprovingly from his lofty position, his eyes questioning, What do you think you're doing here? The interview takes place in an oak-panelled library full of fraying, leather-bound volumes. Out of the immense window, Edinburgh Castle sits atop the city. Nearer to hand, three faces look me up and down. I feel exposed, inferior. The letter arrives on my doorstep the magenta school crest on a crisp white envelope. I lift out the letter on its thick embossed paper. It will decide my future. Several hours pass before I fully absorb its contents. And that evening, the head of department phones to congratulate me. He doesn't miss the opportunity to say, I must be delighted to be given this rare opportunity at such an illustrious institution and that my fellow students must be very envious. I'll be the judge of that, I think, privately. (laughs) Really? I mean, do they really want me, a Glaswegian from a state school, to teach all those posh kids English? For the first time, I consider... will it actually be like to teach in a school that charges £15,000 a year? And that was 28 years ago. Pensively, I walk towards the park. A woman in an olive green barber and riding boots smiles at me from the bench. As I sit down, we exchange pleasantries and she asks me what I do. I explain I'm about to start at Fetty's. Really? She retorts with palpable enthusiasm. How wonderful! Yeah, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. The anonymity of a stranger draws us in very readily. There's such liberation in talking to somebody you'll never hear from again. So I allow my thoughts to tumble out recklessly like a child, pouring out a whole bag of sweets in one go. Oh yeah, I want the job but I don't agree with private education. I mean, do I want to work in that kind of place? There's 15 private schools in this city and they're destroying the state sector. The woman appraises me, one eyebrow raised inquiringly, hmm, her mouth partially open. So you don't actually want to work at Fetty's, alma mater of Tony Blair et al. I hesitate. Oh no, I think I'd feel much more comfortable in a state school where I believe in the system. She seems discombobulated, looks at me intently through her Ralph Lauren glasses and asks, What department is it you're joining again? English, I reply. English, she repeats thoughtfully. As September nears, I start to doubt my ability to manage this job. It's nothing new to me. Voices in my head harry me mercilessly. What makes you think you'll be able to work in a place like that? You've no experience. You'll never fit in. Still, in September, I dress meticulously in my new navy suit for the first day. My colleagues are welcoming and chat cheerfully as I enter. But I'm taken aback by the realisation that virtually everyone has English accents, even though they're Scottish. It gradually sinks in. I'm completely alone in being state-educated and in living off the campus. I have somehow entered through an unseen portal into an alternative unexplored universe which has its own laws, its own language, and is inhabited by a different species. In short, I'm an alien. The school day starts at 8.30 and lessons end at 10 past 6. Yep, that's right, 10 past 6. When I reprimand a student in class, he reminds me that his parents pay me to teach him. After classes, We staff oversee dinner, then prep, known as homework to outsiders and evening duty in the boarding house. The students only domestic task is to clean their own shoes. One girl complains to me that her servants do that for her at home. The day ends at 10 o'clock at night, but it's not over. School continues all through Saturday morning. By that time, I'm on my knees. There's more. We all have to coach a sports team on Saturday afternoons. I have to coach a lacrosse team. (laughs) Now let it be noted, Glaswegians don't play lacrosse. (laughs) And I've only read of it in Enid Blyton novels. I'm not even really sure if it exists. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's a parents' open day on Sunday. Before long, I've worked 12 full-time days on the trot. No wonder everybody lives on the campus. The teachers are boarders too. Of course, they've lived that way all their lives. (laughs) Who needs a personal life anyway? This time, I keep my thoughts to myself, beginning to learn. A month into my new job, I receive a summons to the head's office. What have I done? I wonder, as I knock, terrified. Sit down, he orders. His green eyes stare at me over his steel-rimmed spectacles. My stomach lurches the way it did when my mum was angry at me as a wee girl. I hear, he begins in a low, authoritative growl. You don't actually want to work here, Miss Irvin. I stare intently at the mahogany floor. What does he mean? How could he know that? My brain becomes frantic, madly, searching through events to find the answer. Mr Time, I'm very happy to work here ally. Thrashing around for the missing piece in the puzzle, it feels as if the thought police have entered my brain without consent. As he continues to interrogate me, a sickening realization hits me. That woman That woman in the park. She's the only one I told But how? Why? Oh, what a fool of pain! The conversation continues. I continue to lie. It doesn't work. They never believe in me after that. I'm an imposter from the wrong side of the gates, and an informer has betrayed me. It's true. I don't believe in their system. But... I have to continue to live a lie for two interminable years. Finally, with the most immense sense of relief, I make my escape back through those iron gates to real life and to sweet freedom. On that final day, the head of department thanks me for my meticulous and painstaking work. As he turns to go, he adds, he doesn't think he'll employ teachers in the state sector in the future. It doesn't work. I simply couldn't have agreed with them more. <laughs> Thank you so
0: much, Lorna. Brilliant. Um, just out of curiosity, I did a quick Google uh, the fees now for boarders are, I'm sure some of you will be signing the kids up before you go home, 37000 for the full year. But if you don't want to board, if you just want to be a day uh, pupil, 30000 a year. Uh, it's cheaper for the prep school, you'll be glad to know. So. Thanks so much Lorna, I could hear a lot of agreement in that audience. Up the workers. And that is it for this podcast. We love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on social media. Email, which is story at 10x9.com or via our website, 10x9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It's the best way to get noticed. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now, bye-bye.